This is Deborah Zabladil on behalf of IAOMS, and I am here with Dr. Adrian Sugar with Swansea in Wales in the UK, and we're going to be talking about 3D planning this morning. So welcome, Dr. Sugar. Happy to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. What I'd like to know is your topic that you'll be speaking about, one of the topics at the conference, is 3D planning. What can you tell me about the impact that 3D planning is having on OMF surgery? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's fair to say that uh, 3D planning has probably had more impact in maxillofacial surgery than almost any branch of surgery. Um, and other specialties are learning from us. Um, but it's not ubiquitous, so everybody is not doing it, but more people are becoming uh, involved in planning, especially for elective surgery. And when I say elective surgery, I mean head and neck cancer surgery, uh, a secondary trauma reconstruction, and deformity surgery. Um, and I think there are several reasons why it's now becoming so much, uh, so popular, if you like. Uh, one is that uh, we now actually have software that is user-friendly and does what we need it to do. And that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Uh, there was software around, I had a lot of money to spend, and I decided not to spend it. Mm. Because the products available were not fit for purpose. Um, now they are, and, uh, and there are some very, very good software packages out there uh, uh, that uh, uh, reasonably trained people can learn to use and use regularly. Uh, and, this, and the second thing that's really happened is uh, uh, a kind of revolution in 3D printing uh, with multiple products. And 3D printing has become cheaper. You know, everybody knows from news bulletins on the television about uh, bizarre things. But I'm, we're not talking about bizarre things. We're talking about mostly medical models. Um, which can be used for planning purposes. But virtual models are even better because medical models cost money and virtual models appear on a computer screen and you can manipulate them without destroying them. If you, if you, do, if you practice surgery on a physical model, the model is gone. Um, and if you, uh, but if you practice model in uh, 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 planning, in appropriate software uh, on a computer screen, you can do it any number of times until you get it right. And it's much, much better for the patient if you plan it on a computer uh, until you get it right, rather than experimenting on the patient on the operating table. That makes a lot of sense, and um, that's it's what an innovation. Why do you think that OMF surgery is ahead of other medical disciplines in 3D planning? I think it's possibly because the type of surgery that we do uh, lends itself to that and also because the big software houses had links with maxillofacial surgeons. Um, and uh, uh, for example, one of the biggest uh, uh, such houses in uh, Belgium uh, sent people f to see us and other people and to say, what do you need? And they listened and they produced what we needed. They had the ability to do that. Um, and that was a revolution. It was a revolution because we uh, 
we didn't by then have the money, but we knew what we wanted to spend it on. Uh, previously, we had the money, or I had the money, but I, but there was nothing worth spending it on. And those people who did spend the money uh, 20 years ago regretted it afterwards because they were using it for uh, pretty useless products. Interesting, interesting. So um, we, you mentioned, you know, that not everyone is using 3D modeling and 3D planning, but do you see that it's really growing in the profession and or do you see that it's growing in certain parts of the world and, um, you know, other parts are not yet, uh, haven't yet adopted it? I think that uh, all of those things are true. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, it's growing in some sectors through commercial companies which are selling their service. Um, and they have the money to invest, and that's good. But unfortunately, from uh, our, my group's point of view, we think that's not the best way to go forward because it takes the service and the planning out of the hospital. We want it to be firmly embedded in the hospital, in our department, so that we can do that work. We don't have to rely uh, on a on a company to do it for us. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't some things that the companies are useful for. One of the big problems we have now is that uh, 3D printing, which if you like is the stage after 3D planning, uh, printing can be used for a, a number of purposes. It can be used to make a model so you can see and feel what you're uh, operating on. It can be used to make a guide so that you can uh, 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 be assisted in doing the right kind of intervention and it can also be used to produce an implant whether this be a custom designed plate and screw or a custom designed uh, reconstruction implant um, uh, uh, and, uh, and that's where 3D printing really comes into play but whilst you can make a lot of these uh, products uh, in various different materials. The one that is really the most valuable if you're going to put it in the patient is metal. And that is much more expensive to uh, 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 produce metal in a 3D printer because uh, it's produced normally from powder, metal powder. And that metal powder is uh, 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 transformed with uh, the machinery into liquid form and laid, laid down in, in layers. Now, as you would expect with metal uh, it, the, the, and metal powder, it has to generate very high temperatures to achieve that, and uh, it, it's expensive to do, and it takes a lot of uh, maintenance to do. So this is a problem that we face, uh, and uh, we, we can now... Uh, buy 3D printers that sit on a laboratory surface, yeah, and uh, they we can probably buy them for five thousand dollars, yeah. But if you want to buy a metal printer, that won't fit on the lab surface. It won't even fit on the floor unless that floor is really solid. It has to have a very hard base, and the machinery costs upwards of half a million pounds. So. Uh, you, you're talking about between half a million and a million, and then you have the maintenance costs as well. So there are some issues where you do need to use what I would term bureau printing. In other words, 
we do the planning and sometimes we have to go to a commercial company that we can send the plan to and have the product printed. Uh, but I, would, I, I still think that for us it's very, very important that we keep uh, the uh, process as close to the hospital as we possibly can. One thing I will be talking about this afternoon is how my colleagues and I have been applying this to the management of primary trauma. So in other mm -hmm. words, with not facial fractures that have happened months ago, but uh, facial fractures that happened today or yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have a big time issue. And if we have the, pro if the process is not in our hospital, then the time issue becomes uh, one that cannot be overcome. Interesting, interesting, makes a lot of sense. From a, an expense standpoint, I'm just thinking about areas in the world where you know, it's, uh, they don't have um, extensive funds, even at um, you know, their, their medical centers. Is, it, is this something that's very expensive for um, anyone in the world to get into, not the, necessarily the printing and modeling, but the, the planning piece of it? Well, I've been to China and seen what they're doing and India and seen what they're doing. We're already talking about two and a half billion people in the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was very impressed with some of the 3D printing and planning that they were doing in Taiwan. Uh, so I would say that uh, don't underestimate the so-called developing world. The developing world has access to CT uh, in, in the main, uh, certainly in the cities. Um, and uh, that's the most important uh, modality for us if we're talking about bone and bone reconstruction. Um, uh, not as valuable for soft tissues, so their uh, MR is more important. But uh, th there, and we are currently discussing with uh, a, um, a company in India that wants to collaborate with us on developing these, uh, uh, these technologies in the clinical setting in India. So, and communications now, you know? You, how did you communicate with me about this, uh, uh, this interview? We emailed. Exactly. And how long did it take to, to email me? Not long at all. And, and, that, and even though I, didn't, I was traveling in Brazil and I was in remote places and uh, often didn't have Wi-Fi, but really that delayed a day or two. It, it, it didn't really delay much. And that's how communication is taking place almost everywhere now. Certainly. So, so that uh, uh, this kind of communication adapts extremely well to these sort of planning devices. Only when you get down to the physical device, a physic if you have to have a physical device, then uh, pigeon post comes back into play. You still have to send it between one place and another. But of course, if you have it in the one place that you need it, then you don't have that problem. Thank you. Very interesting. And I'm sure um, your session today will be fantastic and, and, and probably very full. Um, <laughs> we shall see. Well, I, I'm sure it will be. I have some other questions that I'd like to ask you as we close. Sure. Um, can you tell me how long you've been an OMF surgeon? Um, I uh, started my practice as a, as a consultant, uh, um, in, as a consultant surgeon in 1985. 
So how long is that? So that's 20, 30, yeah. uh, getting on to more than 30 years. Yeah. Thank you. What would be one piece of advice or some wisdom that you might share with your younger self? I, I, I think that uh, the most important thing for a young aspiring surgeon to do is to first of all decide what area of interest they have and then when they get that job which doesn't always work out the way you want it to be so uh, sometimes it will be exactly in a place where you can do that kind of work and sometimes it doesn't quite work out that you have to look at what you want to do and what's possible and focus on that and and if you st stay focused on that while delivering a broad service uh, I think the the sky's the limit thank you what vision or hope do you have for the profession of OMF surgery going forward well I think that the specialty um, has modified and adapted hugely over the last 25 30 years uh, it's changed immeasurably uh, in, in my country um, the overwhelming uh, amount of head and neck cancer surgery now is carried out by uh, maxillofacial surgeons uh, in in my unit we have three uh, uh, surgeons who specialize in that uh, and work together they collaborate uh, with uh, often using two team working um, and doing all their own construction, including uh, microvascular reconstruction. Uh, and that has been a huge change from when I was training. Uh, it was a rarity uh, in our specialty, and now it's become the norm. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's happening in different ways in different countries. Uh, and that, and in, in deformity is an area which we always had and which we have now expanded into, especially for example in cleft lip and palate. Uh, uh, I was uh, uh, traveling uh, uh, and met uh, last week uh, an Australian neurosurgeon who couldn't believe that maxillofacial surgeons were treating cleft lip and palate, uh, whereas we have now a significant number of uh, uh, surgeons in the UK who are focused on treating cleft lip and palate in its widest sense um, and uh, are doing a, a great job. And, uh, and I think in, that is also true in other countries where it was not traditional. You look at some of our Indian colleagues who are here today uh, and they are working, some of them, in units where they are treating 500 to 1,000 new babies uh, a year and uh, they are um, leaders in, uh, in this field and, uh, and I think that it's, it's very, very hopeful for our specialties that we see that. And of course trauma and, and uh, that's, uh, the, the way we treat trauma today is so hugely different from what it was 20 odd years ago and all the better for it and, and therefore it, it was a bit of a Cinderella field when I was training, you know. The, the, the chiefs did not want to do trauma. They left it to us trainees to do. Uh, but uh, in, in my unit, every uh, one of the eight consultants that we have 
we all have an interest in trauma and um, some people have more of an interest but I think this is this is the way things are moving forwards and uh, and it's changed and I think all these changes I've talked about have been positive ones. Dr. Adrian Sugar, thank you so much for sitting with me for a few minutes today. I appreciate your time and your wisdom and have a, a great rest of the meeting. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.